0: Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. If you have your Bible, I'd invite you to turn there with me so that we may hear God's Word as it is read. Revelation 1, verses 4 through 8. This is God's Word. Let us give it careful attention. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before His throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. To Him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by His blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He is coming with clouds, and every eye shall see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him, even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we do now come before you and ask that your spirit would attend to the proclamation of your word as it is preached, that it would bring true to the hearts and ears of those who hear it. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, so that you might build up faith and strengthen the hearts of your people, and that you would call those who are outside the camp of your people to new faith so that they might know Jesus both now and forevermore. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So when you go to history and you read about different battles... Kind of something i like to do I always like military history one of the things you realize that is a universal problem with all armies across all uh, time and history is the morale of those soldiers that are fighting the battle so if the army has low morale they usually don't win a battle and that is why throughout uh, history you see that letters of encouragement and support from home could be just as powerful weapons on the battlefield as rifles, tanks, and bombs. You know, when you feel alone in some great struggle or hardship or trial, that sense of aloneness, of loneliness, only adds to the sorrow and the suffering and the fear that you're already facing. But if you know that there is love and there is help and there is support from others, it encourages you to press onward to what you need to do. So letters or even just a warm greeting can do that. Now we don't write handwritten letters very often anymore in this day of texts and emails and FaceTime. Maybe we should. But if you've ever received a letter, you know what kind of special encouragement it can actually be. I mean, just that friendly hello makes you realize there are those who care for you who support you, who love you. The book of Revelation, as we observed last week, is among other things a letter. It is a letter from God to His church, to His people. It's meant to encourage her and to warn her. And like all good letters, it starts with a greeting, a beautiful and profound greeting from heaven. And oh, how the church in John's day needed to hear this greeting. Because the kingdom of the world was beginning to rage against her in a terrible way. Historical evidence points to Revelation being written around 95 AD. And the Roman emperor at that time was Domitian. And according to historical sources, we know he was a cruel emperor who enjoyed seeing people tormented. And he also hated Christians. And so the power of Rome was beginning to turn against the church in a way she had not seen before. Yes, the church was in the midst of a great struggle, a struggle of spiritual warfare. But that spiritual warfare, that struggle of the church, it has not ended For while we may not experience now in our lands tortured imprisonment and death for our faith in Christ, the world has not ceased to strike blows against the church of Jesus Christ in any way it can. Satan uses subtle means, false gospels, false teaching, apathy, toleration of sin, to tempt the church, to compromise the truth of the gospel Yes, we are very much in conflict, a spiritual conflict. And just like those that are in a physical war, we can grow weary, we can feel abandoned, we can begin to give up hope. And when that happens, we do compromise. We compromise God's truth in order to avoid discrimination and slander and rejection from a world that hates us because it hates our God. And furthermore, we still suffer the effects of living in a sin-cursed world. We all experience those hard providences of life, suffering, anxieties, fears, disappointments, sorrows. So just like the church in John's day, we could use a letter from home. And Revelation is that letter. It is heaven's greeting to you. And so this morning, if you are feeling a bit weary in the fights, If you want to quit, maybe you're even wondering, is following Christ worth it? Is this discipleship thing even worth it? If your morale is broken and you are wounded, I'd encourage you, turn your ear to heaven and listen, weary ones, to heaven's greeting to you. You see, heaven's greeting, first of all, is bestowing to you grace and peace. And so John begins in verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace. I mean, what a way to start a letter. Last week we considered how many people feel that Revelation is a frightening book full of monsters and plagues and fire and brimstone. But in reality, it is a book of both grace and peace. Grace is God's means that he grants to us so that we might know peace. Peace is the product of his grace. Grace sustains you in this great spiritual conflict, and peace, the peace of God, is what comforts you in that conflict. And so together, God's grace and his peace preach to us that reality that God is not only there in the sorrow and the suffering, but he is actually there for us personally. You see, we live in a world that constantly tells us that God is not, and we need to be reminded that yes, God is. He is there. That's what grace and peace do for us. God's grapes helps us to persevere in our faith when it is difficult. God's peace calms those inner storms of turmoil by reminding us that we are His and that He deeply loves us. And so heaven's greeting bestows grace and peace to those to whom it is directed. And to whom it is directed? Well, John tells us to the seven churches of Asia, or specifically the church at large. So John says there in verse 4, he's writing to the seven churches in Asia. And we'll consider those specific addresses to those seven historical churches as we go forward in the book of Revelation in the weeks to come. But consider this question. Why is only seven churches mentioned here? I mean, we know there were other churches in Asia. There were more than just seven. John's disciple Ignatius would Also, write a pastoral letter not long after this to other churches in Asia that are not mentioned here in Revelation. So, why seven? Well, here we have the first use of a number in a symbolic manner. Seven is a number that represents fullness and completion. It's going to come up a lot here in the book of Revelation. Each time it denotes a fullness, an effectiveness, a, a completed work or a completed whole. And this is the consistent or this is consistent with a pattern we see throughout all of Scripture going back to creation. God created the world in six days and he rested on the seventh, indicating that creation's work was complete. Seven days. And so when we read of seven churches here. It is indicative or symbolic of the church universal that is to be represented by this number seven. It is all God's people from all history in every corner of the globe that are being sent this greeting from heaven of grace and peace. And so if you are united to Jesus, you belong to him by faith alone, then this greeting, heaven's greeting of grace and peace, is being sent to you this morning. And where does it come from? Well, from the triune God himself. In verses four through five, we have a very explicit representation of the entire Godhead Father, Spirit, and Son. God is one being. Of three persons who are of the same substance and equal in power and glory. And all three persons are involved in sending and communicating to the church this grace and peace. So first we see the grace and peace that comes from the Father. The Father's loving and powerful care is seen in these words. Him who is and who was and is to come. It's a phrase that expresses God's existence, His eternal existence, and His power. And it is from His eternal power that He gives to the church the grace and the peace that she needs. I mean, we as children of the Father depend upon Him for His sustaining grace. The very relationship of Father in children is one that suggests dependence. A child needs its parents to love her and care for Him, and sustain them, and provide for them. And that is especially true in times of turmoil and distress. And so believers, as God's children, can come to Him as their heavenly Father and find that grace that, that they need to help. God the Father will not refuse His children, but He longs to gather them into His loving arms and to shelter them. James 1.17, every good and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Secondly, we see that heaven's greeting comes to the church from the Spirit. The Spirit is seen in that phrase that John writes from the seven spirits who are before His throne. So there's that number seven again. And once again, it simply means not that there are seven literal spirits, but the fullness of the Holy Spirit of God. In fact, you see this expression in other parts of the Bible, seven spirits representing the Holy Spirit. And what that number seven is calling us to do is to consider the effectiveness of the Spirit as He works in our lives. He is fully able to strengthen and to comfort and to guide believers through the mountains and the valleys of life until they reach that final rest in Christ. In John 16, Jesus tells His disciples that the hour is coming when there will be those that will seek to destroy them. And whoever would kill them will think that they're doing it in service to God. But He doesn't want His disciples to fall away from the church. And so He gives them a promise That there will be one who will come, the Holy Spirit, to be their helper, to be their aid, to come alongside them and protect them. I love the old uh, King James translation of John 16, where the Holy Spirit is called the Comforter. The Spirit's comfort is there to unwrap God's people, to give that warmth of peace to protect them from the coldness of this world. Thirdly, heaven's greeting to the church comes from the Son. Jesus is described in verse 5 as being the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now these three descriptions of Jesus correspond with his three offices of prophet, priest, and king. As a prophet, Jesus is a faithful witness. He reveals to his people God's will for their salvation. And he announces and proclaims that, yes, heaven's grace is come upon you. God's peace is with you. As a priest, Jesus ministers this grace and peace by offering up himself as a sacrifice for our sins. And his resurrection from the dead confirms the sufficiency of that sacrifice to satisfy the judgment of God. Jesus' resurrection is in view with that phrase, the firstborn of the dead. Firstborn is not talking about someone who was born first, but it is speaking of first in rank. It means that Uh, Others must follow after him just as brothers and sisters follow after the firstborn in a family. And so Jesus rose from the dead first, conquering death so that we might go after him. Yes, as God's people, Christians need not fear the grave. And finally, Jesus is king. As John says, he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He has all authority over them. They ultimately must bow to him. He rules over the church and the world. And he is a good king who defends those who are citizens of his kingdom, ministering to them yet again grace and peace. You see, every resource of Christ's kingdom and government is committed to the salvation of his people. He holds nothing back for himself, but pours it all out for his own. So, heaven's greeting then bestows to the church grace and peace from the Father, from the Spirit, and from the Son, who is our prophet, our priest, and our king. And that means that if you are redeemed by God's grace and you belong to Christ through faith in Him, then then heaven's greeting, this greeting, is being spoken to you, to your ears right now to hear. God is extending to you the full measure of uh, the grace that He has in His storehouse and pouring out to you an overwhelming ocean of His peace. How do you respond to that? I mean, how do you respond to grace immeasurable and peace without end? Well, you respond in worship. And so the second thing we ought to note concerning heaven's greeting is not only does heaven's greeting bestow to us grace and peace, but heaven's greeting beckons us to worship. When you receive a greeting, what are you supposed to do? Well, you're supposed to answer back. And heaven's greeting is to be met with our worship ardent worship, fiery worship of the God of heaven. And so John's pen then explodes with the first of many doxologies we will see here in the book of Revelation beginning at the end of verse 5. He says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom and preached to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So the key expression here of praise is glory and dominion. Glory speaks of radiant splendor, high honor, and worthiness. And dominion pertains to the the right to govern with power and authority and might. You see, when we worship God, part of what we do is rehearse the great things that God has done for us to save us. Worship is not bestowing to God glory and dominion. He already has those. Rather, we are recognizing that he possesses them and thus deserves our praise. And that is why when you read the doxologies of the Bible, the expressions of praise and of worship, they always have something to say about what God has done to save his people, to make a people for his name. And that is exactly what we see in this doxology. To him who loves us, be glory and dominion forever and ever. To him who freed us from our sins by his blood, be glory and dominion forever and ever. And to him who made us a kingdom, priests of God, be glory and dominion forever and ever. And so it is a call to worship God for His love, for His forgiveness, and for His graciousness. Each of these acts of God result in grace and peace being bestowed upon us. So first consider God's love. Now when we as humans think about love, we usually think of it mainly as an emotion. So when we say we love somebody, it often speaks of how we feel about them. But God's love is far above human love. You see, God is without emotions. He is not driven by passions as we are. We call that the impassibility of God. When you see emotions in the Bible in reference to God, like God's love or God's anger even, those are not uncontrolled passions that govern what He does like our emotions do to us. Rather, they are words that are used to describe, once again, His actions, what He is doing. God's love is manifested in sending His Son to redeem us. Romans 5, 8, God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. James Boyce said, the love of Christ is so great, so giving, so winsome, so victorious, so infinite that we can only marvel at it. It is a love that reaches from the heights of divine holiness to the pit of human depravity to save and keep us from sin. And how can we not worship God for that kind of love that He has shown us? We ought to also worship Him for the forgiveness that he demonstrates. God's forgiveness to believers in Christ is seen in this phrase, he who freed us from our sins by his own blood. Sins, of course, are like chains which bind us. The Bible uses the language of slavery to describe how we are shackled in sin. And so is the condition of every person born into this world apart from the grace of God to break those chains of sin. Jesus said everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And in order for those chains of sin to be broken and to free a person from the slavery of their sin requires forgiveness of those sins. But forgiveness is something that can never be earned It must be granted. In other words, you must be bought out of the slave market of your own sinfulness. A purchase price must be paid. And that payment, as we read here, is Jesus' own blood, His own sacrifice. And so if you belong to Him, if you are united to Christ, He has brought you out of the slavery of your own sin. And He paid for that with His own sacrifice, His own blood. And for that, he is worthy of all glory and dominion. And thirdly, we worship God. We respond to this greeting of heaven with praise because of God's graciousness. John says that Christ has made us, or made his church, a kingdom of priests to God. What does a priest do but serve God and lead in worship of him? That was the original purpose in creation. you find priestly language used to describe Adam's role in the garden. He was to keep it in service of God as a priest would in a temple. And now the church... Is God's temple. And all believers are priests in that temple. You see, Jesus' ultimate purpose in redemption was not the mere forgiveness of sins, though it certainly accomplishes that, nor was his ultimate purpose in redemption to make you happy, though it certainly does that as well. But the ultimate purpose that God saves you is that you might serve God and glorify him as a priest in his kingdom which again brings us back to that right answer, that right response to heaven's greeting. Heaven's greeting bestows grace and peace upon you so that you might answer back in worship of God as you were created and called to do. So finally then, regarding this greeting, let's consider the signature on it. Heaven's greeting... To you is signed by the sovereign God of heaven himself. In other words, this greeting of grace and peace comes to you, church, not as some random hello, not as some remote words of an ancient manuscript that you read, but with all the authority of he who has ordained and orchestrated all things in history to accomplish his purpose, to redeem you, to save you, to make you his own treasured possession. It is a personal greeting to you from the high King of heaven. And so we are told, we are invited to pause, to look and to consider this sovereign one. Consider what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. We read there in verse 7 Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, Amen. Verse 7 here is a quotation. From two Old Testament texts, the first is Daniel 7.13, which speaks of the Son of Man, of Jesus Christ, being enthroned and given dominion over all the peoples and nations of the earth. The second text is Zechariah 12.10, which describes an end time or eschatological period when God will be victorious over all his people's enemies. And both Daniel and Zechariah's prophecies were initially filled when? They were fulfilled when Christ came into the world as a man in his incarnation. The clouds that we read of here, again, are a symbol. They were a symbol of Christ's glory. Glory that the angels announced to the shepherds of Bethlehem that had come to bring peace on earth. So when we read in verse 7 that Christ is coming, we ought not to think of it just of His second coming, though it does speak of that, but it is a process of coming into the world, of breaking into the world that started with His incarnation, His first coming, when He became human like you and me, and it ends with His coming again to bring final judgment and make all things new Again and complete his kingdom. You see, Jesus' coming isn't just some secret thing as some say it will be. There is no secret rapture of the church. We're not going to get vacuumed out of here. We're told here that every eye shall see him. That is very public. In fact, the eyes of the world do see him, not physically, but spiritually. Represented through what? His body, the church. Christ is present here in His church. He can be seen. And even those who pierced Him saw who He was. Just as the Roman soldier at the cross during the crucifixion cried out, Surely, truly, this is the Son of God. All the tribes of the earth that wail, as John mentions, again coming from Zechariah, are crying out or wailing out in repentance because they're hearing the gospel as it spreads to every corner of the earth so that people from every ethnic group, every nation would come to faith in Christ. In other words, Christ is currently coming into the world. He is here now. And of course, He is coming again. He will fulfill this process of coming that is going on through the proclamation of the gospel. He has come. He is coming, and He will come. And it is for this purpose that God's redemptive history has been written with His sovereign hand. And it is that very same hand that signs this greeting of grace and peace to you. God moved heaven and earth to save you from your sins, if indeed you belong to Christ in faith. There are three other ways, real briefly, that we see God's sovereignty here on display. And they all appear in verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is God's signature of heaven's greeting to the church of His grace and peace. And that's meant to emphasize His sovereignty over all history from the foundation of the world until its end. Alpha and Omega speaks of God's eternality, that He is eternal. This is a a literary device called Amerism. And Amerism states two things that are extreme opposites of each other in order to call attention to the everything that is in between those two points. And so Alpha, of course, is the first letter of the Greek alphabet, and Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet And they represent all of history. That's what we're meant to see. That God's sovereignty is in everything from the beginning until the end. Because He is eternal. He is outside of time. And thus He directs everything to bring about our salvation. We also see God's sovereignty in His self-existence. Once again, we see this phrase, who was, who is, and is to come. These are the ver- we're used in verse 4 to describe God the Father. It speaks again of God's self existence, which, of course, the big theological term, if you want to know it, is God's aseity. He does not draw his existence from any other outside source, he simply is and always has been. And because God is self existent, What that means then is that He never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And that is a great comfort for us because it means God's character never changes. If He's been merciful in the past, He will be merciful now and He will be moved to show mercy in the future. If He forgave your sin in the past, He will surely forgive it now and He will forgive it again in the future if you but turn to Him. In repentance and faith. That is grace and peace indeed. And lastly we see God's sovereignty in His omnipotence that He is all-powerful which is conveyed in this title Almighty. It spells out God's right to exercise His sovereign power according to His will. Nothing can stop what He has determined to do. His purposes and plans that He have decided will come to pass just as He decreed. And how does God's omnipotence then communicate grace and peace? Well, it does so because it's the guarantee that when God determines to say to you, grace and peace, it's going to happen. Nothing can prevent it not even your own sin, not even all the powers of Satan and the world. Grace and peace will come to you if God says it must. And the only thing we need to do then is accept it in faith. Faith that responds in worship. So yes, heaven's greeting bestows grace and peace and heaven's greeting beckons you to worship the triune God with all your heart because heaven's greeting is signed by the sovereign Lord who is eternal and self-existent and all-powerful. And that is quite a greeting. That will boost your morale. It's the good news that all the poor and the oppressed and the downtrodden and the weak and the helpless sinners need to hear. I mean, all of us have things within our lives that burden us and break us. We all carry wounds in our hearts from our own sins, sins we've committed, and sins that have been committed against us. And there is that turmoil and that struggle in our souls and our hearts that we face every day. And we let out that sigh crying out for rest, and to that sigh, into that mess of our lives, God says, grace to you and peace. Grace and peace. And all you have to do is with ears of faith turn to heaven and listen to Him who moved heaven and earth to bring salvation to you through Christ Jesus our Lord.